Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the House That Hinky Built podcast. As always, I am your host, Jackson Frank. Uh, today, we are going solo. I'm going to assess the uh, seasons of Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Uh, and per usual, I'm hosting this on Spotify Greenroom. Uh, so I may take some questions as well. If I have time, I may also uh, dive into my assessment of Doc Rivers and Daryl Morey's first year in Philadelphia. Um, but I, there's no one in the room yet uh, on here on Green Room, so I'm going to wait a bit, uh, but then I'll get going. Uh, and for anyone listening as a podcast, as always, I will continue to to ask you to review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It means a ton to me. I'm really enjoying doing doing my first kind of official podcast, but uh, your support is, is really appreciated. And any any criticism or you know, feedback that I can improve your listening experiences is welcome. But I got a couple people filing in here now, so uh, just going to kick it off and kind of break down Ben Simmons' year. Um, it was a pretty strange season, and obviously, uh, I and others have touched on you know him extensively on this podcast, breaking down some potential trade scenarios with his future in Philadelphia. Um, kind of kind of unknown at this point, but um, just a really weird year for Ben. You know, he started off the season, you know, really heavily involved in trade talks with James Harden and uh, obviously it ended up the fact that Harden went to, to Brooklyn, but it was made known that, you know, Ben was the centerpiece in a return deal if, if Harden's going to go to Philadelphia. And some people speculated that maybe that's part of the reason he got off to a slow start. I'm not here to do that. Um, but regardless, he did get off to a slow start this season. Um, just looking at his splits, you can really tell that. Um, just wasn't very aggressive as you needed, was struggling to score around the rim. Um, you know, in December, he averaged 13, 9, and 6 on 54% true shooting, was better in January, 13, 7, and 8 uh, on 58% true shooting, but really kind of turned the corner in late January in a game against the Celtics. Um, you know, prior to that, I, I'm not going to say whether he had an injury, but he, didn't, he wasn't playing as explosively and strongly as he was used to, one of the things that makes Ben so great as a player is his ability to blend speed and force and power. And I just think he lacked that to open the year at times. Um, but he kind of figured things out, um, you know, in that, that fourth quarter of the second game against Boston on January 22nd. I met some huge defensive plays late, ended up with 15 points, um, 11 assists, three rebounds, a couple of steals, a block. Um, and really kind of turned, turned the corner there for a little while. Um, made a late push to make his third consecutive all-star game. And it, it looked as though he he was turning a corner. He was playing with more physicality. His free throw shooting was up. He had a stretch of games from that January 22nd performance all the way to um, basically um, basically the, the first game post-all-star break for him. I know he missed a couple games in COVID health and safety protocols, but... It was a 19-game stretch where he averaged 18.6 points, 7.4 rebounds, 1.6 steals, only 2.8 turnovers, shot 62.4% from the field, 67.6% from the line. I think that's about as high as he got at any point in the season was about 67%. Obviously, he he struggled toward the end of the season pretty mildly with his with free throws, but um, it was a really, really awesome stretch for Ben. It looked as though maybe you know, it took some time for him to figure things out and really take that next step. Um, like I said, the defense was phenomenal. He, he was playing, he was playing efficiently and aggressively offensively taking care of the basketball about a two, two and a half to one assist turnover ratio. I know assist turnover ratio isn't a great stat, but uh, matching with the eye test, I thought he was quite good with taking care of the ball as kind of one of the six or lead handlers. Um, after that, 
after that, he he struggled. You know, Joel Embiid um, ended up missing about three weeks, uh, and Ben had to take on a larger role offensively, and he's not suited for that in the half court. He's a great transition player, but you really saw his limitations as a self-creator, whether it was you know, reverting back to some contact aversion, um, limited handle in, in tight spaces, not really being able to, to finish with his left hand or dribble with his left hand in, in narrow quarters. Um, and so after that, he... It wasn't great. He, you know, he, he, uh, he just, he just kind of went back to some of the things that have always plagued him. Uh, over a, you know, kind of just flipping it back to looking at a stretch of games here, um, trying to pull it up so I can be specific. But um, starting with the Milwaukee game, that that double, that overtime game with the Sixers blew a hugely without Joel. Um, he he struggled. You know, that game he had 13 points, 12 assists, seven turnovers. That's where you kind of start to saw the see the turnovers creep up again. Um, it kicked off that one kicked off a five game stretch where he averaged 5.8 turnovers. Um, but more than that, it kicked off a stretch where he really struggled to score the ball efficiently. Um, you know, about, you know, Joel, Joel came back on on April 3rd, but in the games in the, in the seven games before that, he averaged 13, Ben averaged 13 points on 41% shooting 56% from the line, 4.9 turnovers, 6.0 assists. Um, it was, it was, it was, I think, the worst stretch of the season. Now that makes sense when you're not when you're playing without an MVP candidate. That kind of, that can be that can be what happens. Um, you ju- you just struggle. But I think you really saw the limitations of of Ben as a as a big time offensive creator uh, in the half court. Um, and so it was just I think the best way to summarize not the best one of the ways to summarize Ben's regular season offensively was um, inconsistency. Now when you include the playoffs, I would say disappointing. Uh, and underwhelming are the best ways to phrase his offense, especially when you look at the, the, the Hawks series and the fact that when I do those report cards, I am placing greater importance on the playoffs because the Sixers are a team with an MVP candidate, MVP candidate, Joel. Their goal is to win the title every year moving forward uh, for the near future, as it should be. Um, but off that, he was just really inconsistent in the regular season, just a lot of ups and downs. I mean, just going and looking at his splits on basketball reference, um, it's really emblematic of that. Like I know, I know true shooting is not some perfect encapsulation of a player, but I think with Ben, he really does have an ability or he has the potential to be a really efficient scorer, just given his ability to get to the rim and finish there with the size, the strength and speed. You look at his true shooting month to month, 54, 58, 66, 55, 55, 59 um, points per game, 13, 13, 21, 15, 11, 11. Um, you know, his, his turnover is it's turnover ratio again, which is not a great proxy always, but I think when you watch Ben play, you could tell it was emblematic of him. It was inconsistent. So um, you saw some really, really high points. Obviously he had that incredible game against the jazz that they lost on the road and that uh, mid February road trip. When I think Joel sat out that game against the jazz. Um, and, but at times you had other games where he was really poor. And I think, um, you just you just needed more from Ben. The Sixers' offense really struggled at times this year. I think they're about league average in the regular season, offensive rating wise. And then, you know, of course, in the playoffs against the Hawks down the stretch of that series, their offense was quite poor. And I think Ben's limitations, you know, while not the only factor, were, were arguably the the leading factor. Um, but uh, I think you also have to price in how good he was defensively, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I have been kind of I wouldn't say rambling, but I've been talking quite. Uh, quite long now so i'm gonna get myself a drink of water but i'll be back and please if you have any questions or comments about my first kind of opening monologue about ben's season do not hesitate to post those in the chat i will try to address them I'm, i will welcome any any kind of just interaction about this um, i want to kind of make this an open dialogue being that ben is 
probably the most polarizing device to play on the Sixers right now, but I will give myself just about 10 seconds, then I'll get back on. Uh, but I think on the, the, the other side of the coin, obviously, with Ben, because he is an elite defensive player. He finished second defensive player of the year voting. He made his second consecutive first-team all-defense appearance, and I think it was certainly deserved. Um, even despite his struggles in in the playoffs offensively, when it count, when it mattered most, he was still tremendous defensively. Um, the Sixers, despite Trey Young having a few huge, huge games in the playoffs against the Sixers, did quite well uh, defending Trey Young, and, and, and Ben Simmons, the point of attack, was, was a key part of that. Now, Joel Embiid's pick-and-roll defense was also a, a vital component of that, and I'll talk about it later when I focus on the Joel section of this podcast, but um, Ben was still tremendous on defense. I was really impressed um, with his improved screen navigation. I thought at times he was really good off the ball. I think he was great denying you know, denying passing lanes and stuff. Um, just defended a, a, a an array of all-star caliber players or high-level initiators or just you know, a, a team's opposing primary initiator, whether it was taking, you know, Pascal Siakam for games or R.J. Bear or Julius Randle or, you know, Jason Tatum or, yeah, you got Jason Tatum one game, excuse me. Um, Jason Tatum, you know, Damian Lillard, uh, um, Jimmy Butler, things like that. Um, actually, I don't know. I can't recall. Maybe I maybe didn't guard Jimmy this year. Maybe that was last year. I'm getting it confused. But um, he, he, I mean, he, he's an incredibly versatile defender, and I think that really does matter. Um, it, he, he and Joel Embiid were the two biggest reasons the Sixers had, you know, top two or three defense this year. I know, I know the offense really kind of let them down the playoffs, but the defense was kind of dominant throughout the entire playoffs. Uh, and it, that was the case in the regular season, finished with the second ranked defensive rating, uh, according to NBA.com. And, and Ben was a huge part of that. Um, but for all the good things Ben did this year, um, he, he wasn't there when it counted offensively. Um, he really wasn't. And then, and while I think some some things like yes he would benefit from playing with a better Lee Bond they're like when your team's best perimeter creator is Tobias Harris who while he's grown often while he's grown as a passer like I've talked about with Mike O'Connor on the previous podcast um, he still isn't a great passer and he's not not some you know elite pull up shooter I think Ben would benefit from the presence of both those guys a lot of Ben's issues are self inflicted offensively like I said he doesn't really finish with left handed teams know that he avoids contact he doesn't roll consistently with with vigor as he shows kind of a role, man, he doesn't set consistent screens enough. Um, he's prone to letting himself kind of be taken out of play. Like if he's in the dunker spot, he should absolutely be a, be a big, big threat or presence on the offensive glass. And he, and he really wasn't at times in that Hawk series. So um, I don't want to con- just solely focus on the Hawk series. But like I said, when you are the Sixers and your goal right now is to win a title, the playoffs are going to carry more importance when you evaluate each player individually, um, especially those who are supposedly the second or third best player on the team. Now this year, I think Ben was the third best player on the team behind Tobias and Joel, um, and the Sixers needed him to be the second best. And that's part of the reason they didn't they didn't reach their goals um, of you know either an Eastern Conference Finals or a Finals appearance. Um, like if, if the reality is, if if Ben was a better player this year, there's a chance I'm not doing report cards right now that, that I'm talking about a game potential game five in the in the in the playoffs or in the um, in the final, excuse me. Um, but Ben, but Ben wasn't good enough. And, you know, maybe, maybe he just needs a, a first start. Like I've talked a lot about Ben on this podcast for the last month or so. Um, but I, but I don't, I don't think we need to keep 
keep allocating blame. We're not blame. That's too harsh for responsibility in all these other directions. Like, yes, Joel Embiid is not the perfect comment to Ben Simmons, but Joel Embiid is a lot better than Ben Simmons. So he gets priority. It, yes. Doc Rivers can maybe use him in, in a few better ways at times. And like, maybe incur and try and get him to, to tap into the coaching staff, get him to tap into those big man skills that he could have. Maybe Brett Brown could do the same thing, but now this is, this is two different coaching staffs with the same problems arise. It's three different playoff appearances. And as I wrote my column on Dime Rock Rocks about three and a half weeks ago, like he's had a lot of different contexts. He's had a lot of favorable contexts. never been perfect, but he's had shooting. He's had defensive infrastructure. He's like, he has a lot of things that are going for him and he just he just needs to be a better player. Like we don't need to continue to to look elsewhere. Like it's it doesn't mean he's doesn't mean he doesn't doesn't mean he's a terrible player. It doesn't mean he's not worth all the accolades he's received. It doesn't mean he can't get better. It's not an indictment on his character. By by no means it is that. But the fact of the matter is, he is the one who should be receiving the responsibility for his struggles in key moments. It's not it's not anyone else that I've mentioned here. Um, yes, of course, you know when when he was a rookie. Joel Embiid used to make that that's the entry pass when Ben would seal guys off a lot more. Um, but Ben isn't quite the finisher you'd like there, and uh, he doesn't also seal off guys as much as you'd like. And so I can understand maybe why Joel doesn't feel compelled to make that pass as often. Now, he should make it more. I've talked about that at times, and I've tweeted about it and written about it, but I still think Ben's inconsistencies in that role matter. So um, I just I just think Ben is a very tricky player to evaluate, and quite often, and this is the case with with most basketball analysis that quite frankly requires a level of nuance that people aren't interested in. Ben, the Ben Simmons discussion required a lot of nuanced intricacies. And so he's a very good player. He, he's a deserving three-time all-star. He does. He, I don't know if I would have picked him for all NBA last year, but he had a case for it, of course. Um, and, he, and he made it. He's a very deserving, you know, two-time all defense, first team, all defense player. Um, but the time is now for him. Like I, I'm not going to psychoanalyze him. That's not my job. It's not something I feel comfortable doing. But I think when you struggle this mightily in year four, kind of the time when you should really be figuring things out, like you, like I compare it to like Jason Tatum. Those are guys who have been kind of locked at the hip at times in terms of analysis. Tatum has really figured things out about the last year and a half in his career, really taken a big step in his game to the point where I feel comfortable ejecting him as an MVP candidate pretty soon. Ben hasn't gotten there. And so I think... And he's still a good player. I'm not saying otherwise, but I think when you get to year four in his fifth year in the NBA, I know he didn't play in year one, but he's around an NBA team, he's around NBA development. When you're in your fourth playing year and you're still being hampered in the second round of the playoffs by the same things that hampered you as a rookie, as a rookie, it makes sense. The Celtics were a well-coached team, a very good defensive team. Um, but when these are still issues against the Hawks, who didn't quite frankly have some like incredible personnel to slow him like the Raptors of the Celtics his first couple of years. Like they didn't have DeAndre Hunter, who was probably the best matchup against Ben Simmons. You've you have to approach this offseason recognizing what let you down. It wasn't anyone else. Sure other guys could have been better, but you you are the main reason that your offensive role diminished and your offensive contributions diminished. I think he took three shots over the final four games in the fourth quarter of the Hawks series. I mean, that just can't happen. Uh, I know he has his struggles as a half-court career, but that can't happen. Um, so you, you, what what Ben needs to do to take the next step in his career, and there's a lot of I – I hesitate to say low-hanging fruit at this point because we are four years into his career, but things that should be relatively attainable beyond the jumper. Like, like yes, it would be great if he could shoot spot-up threes and has a, had a mid-range pull-up game to give him some more pick-and-roll ability as a ball handler. But much more attainable things beyond the shooting right now are, like – 
let's get a little let's get a little more post game. Let's not just be let's not let guys who are six five six six high on me in the post. Whether it's Kevin Hurd, Duncan Robinson, other small guys throughout your career. Let's get a little. Let's get let's let's improve our footwork in the post. Let's be more physical as a driver. Let's let's be more aggressive as a roller and screener. Things like that. Like let's let's really attack the offensive glass. Like. The fact that I think Matisse Thibel is a more active off-ball player, and it took Matisse about two-thirds of a year to get there, um, because I thought you, I thought you really saw some flashes in the bubble from him, is an indictment on Ben's inability to really improve his off-ball game. And those things, like you should be a better cutter, more more impromptu screens. And so when I when I look at Ben's holistic season, there are a lot of great things he did, and I think he deserves credit for those. But when you want to grade it and you try to assign a grade to it. I can't ignore how 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 quiet he was over the three final three and a half games of the series when things really fell apart for the Sixers. Um, I can't ignore the fact that his free throw shooting got so bad that they couldn't let him touch the ball in the fourth quarter of a game that they had to replace that they chose to replace him with Tyrese Maxey in, game, in a must-win game six. Um, that matters a lot. And so when I look to give him a grade, I I can't be overly rosy because it doesn't mean he's a bad player when I, I just try to make clear with these grades. It, it is through the lens of who they are as a player, not, not, not just as an average basketball player. So if he, if he gets whatever grade he gets, it's not, if he gets a B plus, it's not the same grade as a B plus for a different player. Um, but I, but I can't give him a B plus. Like I, I, I probably give him somewhere between a C minus and a D quite frankly. And, Maybe that's too harsh. If if you listen to this podcast or the stream and you want to provide some pushback on that, by all means, I'm willing to hear. It. You can post in the chat now on Green Room, or you can you can shout me on Twitter. You can email me. You can post it as a review. Um, but I but I lean to a C minus and a D because he wasn't he wasn't great offensively in the regular season. He was really good defensively, but it got even worse in the playoffs. He couldn't hit free throws. They they he couldn't touch the ball in the in the fourth quarter. And so at times because they were just intensely foul when he was in a, a huge funk at the free throw line. And so like I gave him a C minus two. He doesn't mean, doesn't mean he was a bad player. He, like I said, I thought he deserved his all-star appearance. He was tremendous for long stretches of the regular season, but he, he was so detrimental to what they were trying to do. And if he's a, if he's 15% better in that, better in the Hawks series, like I, like I said, there's a chance, there's a chance the Sixers are still playing right now. And that's not to discredit the Hawks or the Bucks, whoever it is, but the fact of the matter is I have to give Ben Simmons a C minus or D this year um, relative to what I think he can be capable of because of just how detrimental he was in key moments. So that's where I land on it. And uh, like, I think like I talked about with Mike, it seems pretty clear that he's played pretty likely he's played his last game as a sixer just based on the language of the, the Shamshirani report in the athletic earlier this week that said that kind of the writings on the wall for Ben with the, with his future with the franchise. So um you know, I'm sure at some point, whenever, if ever, that trade comes to fruition during the offseason, I'll I'll have a podcast that reflects more on his tenure as a Sixer. But um, I think this season was was kind of emblematic of so far what he, what you've seen is there's there's flashes of brilliance that leave you really enticed about who he could be, um, but you you end up being underwhelmed by the the holistic the holistic some holistic resume on a season by season basis or a, or a, a first for his four year basis or four year you know resume with the Sixers so that's where I stand on Ben a very good player who I often find find my often found myself disappointed and frustrated with um, because of the limitations as an offensive player that largely extend well beyond roster construction 
as has been the case for his four years in Philadelphia, even if roster construction could be a little better and the coaching could be better. The largest culprit for Ben Simmons struggles in the second round of the playoffs three straight years now is himself. And for that reason, I give him a C minus or a D for, for his overall season. Um, but now I'm going to take one more sip of water, reset here. Um, a little more rosy evaluation coming up with Joel Embiid. Uh, we'll talk about him and kind of his leap into, uh, I think, a another stratosphere as a player and the fact that he finished as a runner-up in MVP with his, his best season to date among his five years in the NBA. But give me just a second here as I rehydrate and refuel. As always, if you have any questions or comments and you're listening to this on Green Room, feel free to post them in chat. I will certainly address them. All right, I am back. And one last point I did want to make, because I do want to at least give some quantifiable um, numbers to Ben. 14.3 points regular season, 7.2 assists, 7.2 rebounds, 6.9 assists, 1.6 steals. And the reason I think I call this his worst season offensively, you know, contextually, because um, as a rookie, yes, his his relative true shooting was um, just about 0.1% above league average. Um, that's his relative shooting was 0.1%. This year it was 1.2%. So better in that sense. But I think at this point, um, the fact that it was his true, relative true shooting last year was 3.7. Um, that regression in year four really matters to me. And so I think in conjunction with how quiet he was offensively, that makes it his worst, worst year offensively, despite it being his best year defensively. That's, that's kind of where I stand. So I want to clarify that, but shifting gears, I've talked enough about Ben Simmons on this podcast and today. So I'm going to talk about Joel Embiid who, Honestly, just had an incredible season. Last year was his, I think last year was his worst relative season. Um, he struggled with some injuries. Clearly, the roster was not suitable for him. Um, it just it just seemed like a joyless year for him. And he talked about the fact that he didn't really trust the teammates passing out of the post. And I think you could just tell the vibes overall for the team, including their best player and Joel Embiid, were much better this year. But, um, you know, came off of the, a year in the bubble where, or, you know, came off a, a 4-0 sweep in the bubble. That was largely not his fault. He was quite good offensively. I think he averaged 30 points on 60% true shooting. The defense was not there, but he was having to do a ton offensively and, and was dealing with a very limited roster without Ben Simmons available because of a knee injury. I believe it was a knee injury. Um, and this year just, I mean, he had a couple of lulls, but just was basically dominant from day one. Um, one of the, honestly, one of the best scoring seasons for a big man in recent history. Um, he averaged 28.5 points per game, but per 100 possessions, he averaged 44.1 points on 63.6% true shooting, had a ridiculous free throw rate of 61%. In the playoffs, it was still quite high at 55.3%. Um, in the playoffs, his true shooting was 63.1. I think it was about 58 or 59 in the Hawks series, um, all of which he was dealing with a torn meniscus. Now, torn meniscus meniscus is it like is it like cacti is that how you do it if anyone knows the plural of meniscus please let me know in the comments here but um dealing with a torn meniscus um and those can range in severity and impact but um just an incredible season like he kicked off the year uh with a 29 points on 17 shots eight from the line 14 rebounds two assists one block and some dominant defense against the wizards um he he had uh Two games with 20-plus free throws. 
He had one, two, three, four, five games with 40 plus in the regular season. I think he had one game in the postseason with at least 40. Um, he had one, two, three, four, five, six games in the in the uh, in the in the postseason with at least 30 points. Um, he he made an all defense team. I don't think he was quite warranted for that in the regular season, at least. But he was just incredible defensively in the playoffs. Um, whether it was helping shut down Bradley Beal in the pick and roll and, and making things really tough for him at the rim, or it was taking away Trey Young's lobs or floaters and really forcing Trey Young in some tough decisions. Um, just an incredible, like, just an incredible defensive performance in the playoffs. Like he was so good defensively two years ago against the Raptors, and I think he showed in this year's playoffs that he. Like I think he he Giannis and Draymond are the three best defenders in in the NBA, um, you know, at their peaks. And I, I I try not to always be like oh at their peak because I think if you use that 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 conversation can get really muddied. But I think you can tell that Joel really ramps it up in the postseason defensively the last few years. And so um, Rudy Gobert is a very good defender, and by no means was he the main culprit for the Jazz's struggles defensively against the Clippers. But he still was one of the he still was responsible even if it was far down the checklist there. Um, and I just think Joel, Giannis, and Draymond are, are, are better suited for the playoffs. And so um, just an incredible year for Joel on that end. Uh, not that, excuse me, just an incredible year overall. In the playoffs, he was incredible on defense. Um, and, so, and just, just his, his movement abilities at that size and strength, ability to change directions, um, just an incredibly graceful athlete with great footwork and just just the ability to maneuver in space at the size he is. Like, I think he had, I think he forced a turnover in game one against Trey Young where he switched onto him and, um, it, it contained him. He had a play. He has had plays like that throughout his career where he contains guys he shouldn't be able to contain at that si- at his size. Um, but offensively is where Joel really took a leap, and and he he diversified his game a lot. And, and the coaches adapted well to to diversify his offensive usage. He wasn't just the same back to the basket post player. Much more face up touches and mid range game was incredible this year. Um, I'm going to pull up the cleaning the glass numbers, but um, just incredible at drawing fouls. He, he was. You could use him. In, you could use him as a. Even though he has to improve still as a, as a roller and diver and pick and rolls, you could use him in pick and rolls because he could just kind of saunter into the mid range area and then he kind of treat it as a face up play. Um, was great there. Hit some hit. Was a big great pull up shooter this year. Like I think I know that all, but pull up shooting is not all created equal. But synergy, I think, and off the dribble shooting this year had him in like the had him in a very great category or percentile. Let me pull that up quickly here. I apologize from all over the place, but Joel had an incredible year that I want to properly give its respect to extend its respect to um so pursed energy he was in the 74 percentile uh and all jump shots off the dribble took 153 of them so uh really great you just get those one or two mid-range pull-ups maybe off the dribble handoff or pick and roll um just really much more diversified usage um, by the end of the year in that in that playoff series with the hogs had incredible chemistry with seth curry and dribble handoffs i'm really excited to see or intrigued to see what that looks like next year. I think they really started to get the hang of that. Like, you know, Joel and JJ Reddick had a great chemistry there. And I think it was kind of reminiscent of that by the end, they had flashes throughout the regular season, but it was tough with Seth's inconsistencies at time because he was coming back from COVID and Joel was, Joel was in the lineup at times as well. Um, but they really kind of hit the, hit the stride there. And that's part of Joel's just ability to be a, a diverse offensive player. Um, and so just, just the shooting this year and, in conjunction with just the dominant scoring. I mean, like I said, like 28 and a half points per game, um, playing about 32 minutes per game, I believe. Um, let me check that here quickly. 31.1. 
51% from the field, 54% on twos, 37.7% from three, 86% at the line, taking about 11 free throws per game. I mean, if you like, I mean, just one of the best foul drivers in the NBA with the pump fakes and the rip throughs and the, the sheer force, his ability to get really deep position on early seals or, or, you know, transition seals, things like that. And force the defense to foul him was incredible. Um, just very impressed by that. And just how, how much he grew offensively this year. Um, He's still not quite the guy I think you want to be your 1A offensively, but I feel pretty damn comfortable saying that Joel Embiid can absolutely be the best player on title team, and it's largely because of that growth offensively. Um, you always know you're, you you're going to get elite defense from him. Like I've talked about this extensively in the podcast, but I don't worry a ton about the defensive drop-off if, if you trade Ben Simmons because I trust that Joel Embiid is going to anchor a very good defense. Um, because he was, he, he, for everything Ben Simmons did great this year on defense, as I talked about minutes ago and I've talked about at length, Joel was the, Joel is the main reason that defense was great all year because of his backline protection and just his deterrence and his versatility, his ability to play multiple, like I talked about his offensive versatility, but his ability to play multiple coverages defensively, he can switch at times, he can obviously play drop, he improved a ton there this year as well, I think. His ability to play those one-on-twos and pick-and-roll drop coverage against a lob threat improved a ton. He still has struggles because he isn't very can't really like explode off the ground as a vertical leaper. Um, but just he got really good at positioning this year that helped him a lot. And that Hawk series, you can hedge and recover with him. You can show you can do so many different things with him pick and roll coverage. And pick and rolls are often the basis of of an offense. And so I think that really gives you a really high floor with his defense. So that's why I don't worry a ton there. Um, but the offense is where I really think he took a step forward. Like there was a stretch this year in the playoffs where he was legitimately playing as the best player in the world. Doesn't mean he's the best player in the world. I'm not saying that at all. But I think Joel entered a stratosphere this year where he has a case as the best player in the world. I wouldn't go there. I think I think I would still lean LeBron. Like I don't want to get into a big discussion, but I think Nikola Jokic was the best player for much of the year. Giannis is playing like it right now. Um, you know, Kawhi has had stretches like that. There's I think there's a big list of guys who about a six to seven guy list. I would have to think about it in depth a little bit. But there's a list of guys that I think are in that tier. And I think Joel Embiid absolutely entered that tier this year. While I, I was a little skeptical of him getting there, or not skeptical, I was a little skeptical of him being in that tier before this season, especially after the down year he had last year. Um, but he absolutely got there to me, um, and so I think that's a huge testament to him. Now I do I do want to acknowledge some things. I think he he could have been better in in crunch time of some of the hot games against the Hawks. Um, that's absolutely true. Like he struggled at times. Like I think in game in game five when they Game four or five, I think it was game four, actually, when they blew that 18-point in the second half. I think he was a bit too – I think he was a bit too willing to try and draw fouls rather than just get buckets or you – know, these I sound like a total – total like Uncle Drew there, like the name of the game is buckets or whatever. But um, I think he was a little bit too prone on trying to draw fouls rather than just, you know, try and look to actually score. Um, you know, his numbers in the fourth quarter of the Hawks series were not great at times. Um wasn't great in the fourth quarter of game seven. Wasn't great in the fourth quarter of game five when they blew that big lead either. Um, so those things matter. But I think at the same time, that that to me, when you talk, so when I juxtapose with Ben Simmons, who I have made clear that I think most of his issues are self-induced rather than anything to do, anything largely tied to roster construction. I think the opposite is with Joel. Joel would like, like I really want to see Joel with an offensive player who warrants at least at least considering like balancing the usage 50-50 as your top guy. And he hasn't, he's had that guy for 
55, 60 games of his of his Sixers tenure now through five years when they had Jimmy Butler. Tobias Harris took huge strides, as I as I've said at ad nauseum, but he's not that guy. Like he's just not kind of who he is. Um, and so I think Joel would really benefit from a better perimeter creator that wouldn't ask him someone who improved a ton with his double team passing this year, um, has that skip pass down to the corner, can make the skip pass to the wing as well, was pretty prompt about making the kickouts at times um, on the strong side, like with Danny Green or Seth Curry was the entry pass man, was really good at just kind of that one-handed shovel pass back out to the strong side shooter, um, but still has some struggles with decision-making and bringing the defense. Like I think a lot of his passing reads are premeditated, the things he knows to look for when the defense can complicate that he struggles. Um, and so I think someone who wouldn't force him to take on such a huge burden and could actually, you know, be a big advantage, could attack closeouts and make passes because the Sixers biggest issue right now, like they have the shooting now, it's the, it's the lack of really, really high level half court passers or advantage creators or ability to attack closeouts. Like Seth Curry can do it at times. Tobias is a little too methodical, do things on my own terms. I think if the Sixers are able to land a perimeter creator who at least prompts the coaching staff to reconsider how big of a usage rate Joel takes on. I mean, like his usage rate this year was its highest since his rookie year, I believe. 35.3%. His rookie year is at 36% according to basketball reference. Um, year two, 33.4. Year three, 33.3. Last year, 32.9. And so like a guy like Joel who was just as an incredible defensive player, shouldn't have to take on a 35.3% usage rate. Like he's a great offensive player as well, or a very good one, I should say. That's a better way to phrase it. But you you have some diminishing returns when your roster construction necessitates a guy who still has some trouble reading the floor and with decision-making to take on that big of a burden. So for that reason, I don't, As even though I do think Joel deserves some criticism for his struggles in the fourth quarter, I am much less, much less uh, harsh than I am on Ben Simmons with those struggles because I think one, they were much less significant and two, much closely tied to the roster construction and the lack of optimal personnel around Joel. Like I've talked about it. I've written about it. Like ever so many people to want to talk about how the roster limits Ben Simmons. It, it limits their best player much more. And that's where I think most of his struggles come in. And maybe that, maybe that speaks to the fact that he shouldn't be, Maybe I shouldn't have him in that tier as a guy who I think can be the best player in the world or the best player on a title team. But I don't think that's true. I think, I think, you know, I just think it is a flawed roster that hasn't ever had the necessary talent or ideal archetypes around him. And so that's where, that's how I view his struggles in the fourth quarter of that Hawk series. Yes, he should have been better um, at times. Like I think game five was really poor from him. Um, if I recall it, if I'm getting the game right there correctly, let's want to be factually accurate here. We are in the name of, of accuracy and, would not be a yeah, game. No, game five, he was good. I mean, game six, he was not great. Game four, he was four of 20. Didn't, didn't have a buck in the second half. So on the right track, but game four, when he, when they blew that lead, um, obviously should have been much better. Um, but again, the defense was just incredible while playing with the torn meniscus. Again, the torn meniscus ranges in severity there. Um, but just an overall really, really incredible season for Joel. And I'm not going to sit here and do a sob story about how he deserves better and, and all that, but Quite frankly, the 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 front office and for I mean they've had three or four different iterations of the front office now while Joel has been been a Sixer um, needs to do a better job of surrounding him with the optimal personnel offensively. Defensively, I think they're they're good. You have Ben Simmons; he's incre- he's an all league defender. You have Danny Green; he's a good help defender. Tobias has taken strides. Obviously, Matisse Thybulle is an all all league defender as well. Um, 
But offensively, you need there needs to be a, a bigger priority to not lean on Joel because one, I think, as much as you ask of him on both ends, you can see that kind of wear on him. And so maybe, maybe yeah, he's not quite as like capable of that huge workload on both ends that you'd prefer. Like yeah, maybe he's not peak LeBron or things like that. He's not, maybe he's not even Giannis. But I, I think, I think he he could be even more dominant if he didn't have if he could have a usage rate around 30, 31. Like if he averaged. 25 points per game or 24 points per game rather than 28 and 44 per 100 possessions. Um, I think you'd see him being even more dominant. And he still, like, he still was an MVP candidate. He was an MVP finalist. Deservedly, in my opinion, finished second. Other guys have cases as well, but I don't think by any means it was it was unfounded that he was the runner-up. And so um, just a really incredible season for Joel, who I think took the leap into being that 1A guy on a title contender. Still could use a little more help offensively and I think he's a little overextended there. Um, but for me, I give Joel a firm A, just docking him ever so slightly for some struggles in the fourth quarter of of those of the games against the Hawks, even if I'm not going to be even if I'm not going to indict him too much because I think that's largely tied to roster construction. But I give Joel Embiid a firm A in his 2020-21 NBA season, his fifth year in the league, because I think he took this took the step from one B to A guy on a title team to absolutely a guy who can be the best player on the title team. And that is an incredibly hard step to make. And I, I give him all the improvement in the world for improving all, all the improvement. I give him all the praise in the world. My goodness. This, is, this apparently is what happens when I try to host a podcast solo. Uh, I, I fumble over my words, which is why I'm much better as a writer. So anyhow, I give him all the credit in the world for taking those steps offensively um, while maintaining in the playoffs elite defense um, you know, he just much more offensive diversification, whether it was mid-range jumper, the pull-up jumper, the face-ups, improving as a passer, despite still needing some more strides there. Um, just an all-around dominant year for Joel Embiid, who I think when he is, when he is on top of his game and he has, sorry, actually, I hate that trip. I hope people say that because he was on top of his game pretty much the entire year. Um, I, I think Joel Embiid has a case for best player in the world if you want to make it. I can't quite get there, but I think he reached a threshold this season that he deserves to be in the conversation, given the way that so many guys have staked their claim at times, whether it was Kawhi, Nikola Jokic, Giannis, LeBron before he succumbed to injury. Um, you know, Anthony Davis had a great bubble run. James Harden is James Harden. Kevin Durant who had an incredible second round series, especially against the, against the Bucks. A lot of guys in that tier for me, um, and I think Joel Embiid absolutely joined that tier this season, and he deserves all all the credit in the world for that growth and the coaching staff deserves some credit as well for diversifying his usage. And that's how I view his season. Um, you, you found you have the Sixers now have accomplished the hardest part of team building in basketball. And that is your offensive that is, that is your superstar who can lead you to a title. The steps now are to see if you can surround him with the necessary co-star um, because as good as Ben Simmons is, I think he's proven to not be of that caliber. And as good as Tobias Harris is, I think he's also proven to not be of that caliber. Um, and so that's that's the next step is finding signing that co-star, that number two, which is also very hard. But I think I think Joel has proven you can win with him as your number one. Um, and sure, maybe we'll, we'll factor in health of this, and maybe that's why you dock him. I think that's reasonable. Um, but I but I just think at his peak, Joel is absolutely the guy that can win you win you a title, and he he made that leap this year because. As much as I supported Joel throughout his career, I didn't quite think he was there previous to this year, even if he was a top 10 player, undoubtedly. 
Um, he made that leap into someone who has a case if you want to make it depending on what, exactly what you value skill-wise as a top three, top five guy. Um, he was just that incredible this year. So a firm A for me for Joel, which means the only player on the roster who got an A-plus in this review was Seth Curry, um, and deservedly so, I think. But an A is an apt, apt grade in my eyes for Joel Embiid, who, as I said, made the vital and arduous leap from very, very, very good superstar to elite of the elite superstar uh, and is a guy you can win with as your best player on a title team. Um, that is going to do it for me today. Uh, I hope my hope for anyone listening uh, that I, I didn't ramble too much and it was insightful for anyone listening as a podcast. I hope the same. Um, once again, please, please, please do review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I mean, tell me, please offer feedback too. Like I imagine this won't be my last solo podcast. If there's anything you'd like to see me do better, um, by all means, please, please let me know. I am more than more than one to hearing things. But uh, the plan now will be to shift the topical coverage to the NBA draft. I'll bring on some of my my favorite NBA draft analysts to break down some prospects. I think it might, might be good fits for the Sixers at number 28 and 50. So that will start Saturday, I believe. Um, but until Saturday, uh, I hope everyone stays happy, stays healthy, stays healthy. Uh, stay safe and I'll talk to all of you again soon.